is good to be here today, and I'm glad you're here on this uh, on this half winter, half summer uh, day. I'm not sure what it is. I was telling someone this morning it's it got chilly enough two nights ago. I actually had to turn the heater on at the house and take the chill out of the house. And then I saw the news what's going on in Buffalo, and I thought I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> they have uh, snow everywhere, and uh, just reminds me of why I live in Florida. So uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. Take your copy of God's Word and go to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Uh, we're going to think for a few, more, a few minutes together this morning about a superior covenant, a greater covenant. Now so far in the book of Hebrews, the writer has spent seven plus chapters in our, in our breakdown of the Bible. For You understand that in the original writing there were no chapter breaks, so we'll just use it in our terms. The first seven chapters, the writer has spent an incredible amount of time uh, speaking to these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians who had trusted uh, Jesus as Savior, and they're, they're what we would call Messianic Jews. They believed in Jesus and they left Judaism, but in the first century it would have been very challenging for them because Judaism, until AD 70, the, the, the temple was still there and the city was still there. And so it would have been very challenging for them not to go back to Judaism and, and to hold on to this Savior whom they saw die and resurrect and, and go back to heaven. So the writer has spent a considerable amount of effort showing them that Jesus is better than the Aaronic priesthood, that Jesus brought in a greater priesthood, a better priesthood, a better system than they had understood. He built his case by way of review that leads into his discussion of a covenant. He built his case on three primary truths from the Bible. Uh, let me review them for you very quickly. In Genesis 14, we were introduced to a guy named Melchizedek. The writer said to them, this guy Melchizedek was a king and a priest to the Most High God. Abraham had gone out and recovered his lot, his nephew Lot from Keterleomer and this confederacy of kings who had come and conquered the city-states around Sodom and carried all the people away as captives. You'll remember the story there. Abraham armed his his armed servants in his household, and he went after them, and he conquered them, and brought everybody back. And when he came back, this character that we're introduced to in Genesis 14, named Melchizedek, shows up on the pages of Scripture. He's a king, he's a Gentile, he's a priest, he's a priest of the Most High God. And when Abraham met him, two interesting things happened. Number one, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Abraham gave him a tithe. And the writer's point is this, the greater always blesses the lesser. So Abraham willingly received the blessing from this man who was greater than him, this priest, this king. And then in, in recognition, Abraham gave a tithe of all the stuff that he had recovered. He gave it to this man, giving it to God. And so the writer's point was simply this. Every Hebrew, every Jew who would come into the nation of Israel were in Abraham at the time, because Abraham was the first. And so the fact that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham blessed him, and Abraham gave a tithe pointed to a priesthood that's greater than the Aaronic priesthood. We pointed out last week, Melchizedek was a foreshadow, was a type of Christ who would come, a king and a priest. And so the writer used this truth of Melchizedek and the fact that he was a foreshadow to prove to these Jewish believers to say, look, Jesus is greater than what you knew before. He's greater than the whole Aaronic system, the law. He's greater than that because Jesus came in and replaced it. Secondly, he said, the Aaronic priesthood that came through Abraham was imperfect. The, the whole legal system, the law, the sacrifices, none of those could take away sin. 
No one was ever saved through the law. No one's ever been saved through the law. In fact, the law, the Bible says, is our schoolmaster. He teaches us, if you will, that we need a Savior. And so the writer reminded these Jews that no matter uh, how, how Israel gave their best effort to obey the law and, and, and to work under the Aaronic system, under that priesthood system, they always came up short. Not because God's system was faulty, but because human flesh is weak. You and I can testify today, right? No matter how hard you try, you can't be perfect. No matter how hard you try, you can't be all that God wants you to be. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to create a, that in us. And so the writer simply pointed out to them, you couldn't, you couldn't be successful under the old system. And then thirdly, he said the, the Aaronic priesthood was limited because those men all died. They all had a limited amount of time they could serve. And his point was this, Jesus is a greater high priest than any high priest of the Levitical system. Jesus is the high priest who came in and replaced that. And he's a superior high priest. And to sum it up, remember last week what we talked about. The writer pointed out three things about Jesus that prove his superiority. One, Jesus is a perfect mediator. What does a mediator do? A mediator brings two people together. We are separated from God by our sin by nature. We're born into this world with an atomic nature, a sin nature, and we act on that sin nature by disobeying God. And we commit sin because we're sinners. So what does Jesus do? He mediates between us and the Father. He died on the cross, paid for our sin, and He stands between us and God, and He brings us back to God. The moment we're saved, our sin is forgiven. And He puts His righteousness on us, and He presents us back to the Father. So He's the perfect mediator. The Levitical system can never do that. Jesus Christ can do that. Secondly, he said Jesus is a, a greater high priest because he's not only our mediator, but he's our advocate. An advocate is one who stands on your side. An advocate is one who takes up your case. Do you know, and I know you do, you're all intelligent folks, I can tell by looking at you. You know, you know that we face challenges in this world. And if you're a born-again child of God, the world's against you. And the whole world's system's against you. Your own flesh is against you. We need an advocate, don't we? We need somebody on our side. We need somebody who's speaking for us. We've pointed out several times in the study that the Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He loves to point out our deficiencies to God. He loves to point out the failures of the church and the church system. He loves to point out when some pastor falls. He loves to point out when some heinous thing takes place in the church and it paints a dark picture over all saved people and the world just gloats over it. He loves to do that. But I want you to know we have an advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father, who speaks on our behalf, and he says, I got them, they're covered. Their sins are forgiven. They're mine. I bought them. So you have an advocate. He's a greater high priest. Listen, no Levitical high priest could do that for you. Every Levitical high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year, make one offering, and he could only do that when he made offering for his own sin. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He's perfect and holy because he's God. So he's the perfect advocate. And finally, Jesus is our eternal high priest. He don't ever die. In other words, he's the perfect high priest, and he'll be our high priest for all of eternity. Listen, in heaven... In heaven, we have fellowship with our high priest. We can have communion with him. I don't know. There's a lot of questions about what heaven's going to be like. The Bible gives us just enough to whet our appetite, doesn't it? I mean, you read it and you go, man, that's going to be fantastic. But I'll tell you the truth, I don't think the half is told. 
When we get there, it's going to be some kind of magnificent. And the best part will be being able to see Jesus face to face and being able to talk to him. And, you know, we can show up to Jesus and go, you know, I got this list of questions that, you know, I really was thinking about. And then I got to thinking about it. We probably, when we get there, our capacity to understand will be restored to what it was in the beginning. I think a lot of those questions will get answered when we get there. You know, we'll look around and go, okay, well, now I understand. And Jesus will just look at us and smile and go, yeah, now you understand. That's the Savior we have in a high priest. That's the better high priest. Now, here's his point beginning in verse 6. It stands to reason, it's intuitive, that if we have a better high priest, then he brings in a better covenant. Everybody following that? The better high priest brings in a better covenant to replace the old one. So look at verse 6. But now... He, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about covenants. And let me just review very quickly some of that because it's, it's applicable here. A covenant is an agreement between two people or two groups of people. It can be between two nations. It's an agreement that uh, between two parties that one party will will do some things and the other party will do some things and as long as they both do what they agree to do, the covenant's in force. The covenant uh, is, is in play. In other words, if one person in the covenant breaks their part of the deal, then the covenant is no longer in effect. In the Bible, there are two covenants. There's the old covenant and there's the new covenant. Now the old covenant was the law. The law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, this covenant between God and his people. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 24, you can read all about it. Moses went up on the mountain. God gave him the law. God said to Israel, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. God said, here's my law. And if you do this, if you obey my law and you worship me and you don't commit idolatry and you don't worship other, other, other deities and you obey my law... I'll be your God and I'll bless you. So the covenant was, you obey, I bless you. You disobey, I chasten you. Okay, That was the deal between them. This covenant was, was a, a conditional covenant. In Exodus 24, the people agreed to it. For a covenant to be in place, the two parties have to agree to it, right? In Exodus 24, you know what the people said? Everything God told us to do, we're going to do it. Better be careful. Everything God said, we're going to do it. How'd that work out? Well, I read past Exodus 24. Let me tell you what happens, okay? They don't do so well, all right? I mean, sin, you know, the whole thing, right? And so they, they go down this road of, of breaking the covenant with God over and over and over. Now, thankfully, God is loving and compassionate and long-suffering and merciful. And God gave them chance after chance after chance. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Hey, hey you guys need to repent and come back or I'm going to chasten you. And eventually, the Assyrians carried away the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem in the temple and carried them into captivity. Was that what God wanted for them? No, they broke the covenant. I would suggest to you we need a better covenant. What do you think? The failure in the covenant wasn't God. The failure in the covenant was us, them, right? And so we need a better covenant. The writer said Jesus brought in a new covenant, a better covenant on better promises. Now let me, now I want you to, to listen very carefully. This is tough to do on a Sunday morning 
because we're not in a, in, a, in a scholastic setting. But I want to share with you two words that the New Testament uses when it speaks of, of covenants. Synthike is a word that means covenant. That's the word you mainly find, okay? That's the one if you have a covenant of marriage, synthike. If two people make a covenant, let's say your family farm grows oranges and my farm next to you, we grow apples. And so we get together and I say, hey, every year at harvest, you give us 100 oranges and I give you 100 apples. And during the year, if I'm out working, I'll watch over your field and make sure nothing nefarious is going on. And likewise, you watch over my field. So we have this covenant, right? And every year we're sharing apples and oranges. That's synthike. That's a covenant. And marriage covenant. Two people enter into a covenant to be married. They both agree, we're going to marry one another. They enter into a covenant. That kind of covenant has some interesting characteristics. It's entered into on equal terms. Which means when I enter into the covenant with you, or my family enters into the covenant with you, we're on equal terms. I want oranges, you want apples. Okay? As long as we both are supplying the equal input into the covenant, everybody's happy. But if someone breaks their end of the deal, I don't bring the apples, you're going to keep the oranges. Okay? So this covenant's completely dependent on equal contribution, equal giving into this covenant. Okay? Interesting thing in the New Testament, that's not the word used for covenant most of the time. Diothiki is the word used. Amen. Now that's a different word. You say, well, why is that important? Well, I'm about to tell you. It makes all the difference in the world. That's the word he uses right here for covenant. Diothiki is mainly used in the Greek language to speak of a will. Like you have a, a, a benefactor and beneficiaries. Now you're starting to see why he uses this word for the new covenant, okay? If, if a person is a benefactor and they write a will, they determine the blessing that will be on someone who will receive them. The benefactor does, not the beneficiary. So the benefactor writes the will and says, when I, when I leave here, my goods will be distributed and you'll get this and you'll get that and you'll get this. Why is the writer in the New Testament, particularly the writer to Hebrews and the Holy Spirit, led him to use this word. Why did he lead him to do that? Because the covenant that Jesus brings in is like a will more than an equal covenant. You follow me? This new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ is one-sided. Listen to me. In the covenant that we have now in Jesus Christ, it's not equal contribution. Everybody follow me? In fact, I'll even take it this far. In this agreement, when we get saved, we bring nothing, and God brings everything. Amen. You know why God had to do it that way? Because we keep messing up our end of the deal. Because we can't bring anything. And so this new covenant, the Athiki, is a covenant where God is the benefactor. He, he bestows on us the blessings of salvation and the gift of life, and we bring nothing. We do nothing. It's a covenant that is unconditional for us and completely conditional on Him. You say, boy, that's wonderful. You know why it's wonderful? Because that's the only way we could be saved. It's the only way it would work. It's the only way that, that, our, that our redemption could be purchased. It's the only way we could have this relationship with God. God brought in this kind of covenant. And I want you to listen very carefully, if you haven't been already. 
You say, Pastor, I don't even know what them words mean. Well, I'm telling you, listen. The beneficiary of that kind of covenant has two choices. You can receive it or you can reject it. Listen to me. You can't change the terms of it. You can't tell God I don't like the way it's going. You can't tell God I don't like the part that I'm getting. No more than a person who writes a will and leaves stuff to a beneficiary. The person that, that the reading of the will can't say, well, I object. Well, you can't object because the person who's giving it to you chooses to give it to you. You can't change it. When we come to God the Father through Jesus Christ, listen to me, you either come God's way or you don't come. Amen. The gift that God offers, the, the, the benefit of being saved is His way or no way. Our only response to God, the only possible two responses are to receive it or reject it. Now here's what that means today for those watching online. There's a covenant on the table, so to say, from God. There's an offer of a covenant. God wants to have a covenant with you personally. And he's made all the provisions. Sent his son to die on the cross. Jesus died, paid for our sins. Rose again the third day, conquered death, conquered the grave, ascended back to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. He's our high priest forever. We just talked about that. He's our, our mediator, our advocate. Now, the only response to that is either receive it or reject it. I would, I would, in the strongest terms, suggest that you accept it. I would suggest that you come to God on his terms, confessing your sin and by faith ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to be your savior. If you'll come to God confessing your sin and ask Jesus by faith to save you, he'll save you. That covenant will be applied to your life. The blood of Christ will be applied to your account. Your sin will be forgiven. The account will be settled. You'll have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus will restore you to a relationship with the God who created you. And you'll have eternal life with him. Now the alternative is not good. To reject God's new covenant, which is a better covenant, to reject God's new covenant is to face an eternity of judgment, of punishment, and the lake of fire. I want you to listen to this part carefully, very quick. God's covenant offer has an expiration date in this life. Listen. If you're on your phone or whatever you're doing, listen to me. God's offer of eternal life has an expiration date. The day you die. If you die without accepting Jesus Christ, it's done. Are you listening? It's done. There's no repeat. There's no do-over. There's no, you end up in hell and go, ooh, I made a mistake. Let me go back. It's done. Do you understand that? It's done. I would say to you, don't end up in hell and regret the rest of eternity that you didn't listen. Whether or not you get saved really only affects you. Okay? We Christians who are trying to convince you to get saved, we're already saved. I'm going to heaven, okay? But God loves you. And because God loves you, I love you. And I don't want you to die and find out that you messed up. 
there's a better covenant on the table from God. It is a covenant where he did all the work and we don't have to do anything. That's a good covenant. All we have to do is receive it. Don't reject it, okay? Don't do that. That's what the writer said in verse 6. He said, boy, that's a lot of stuff in verse 6. Yeah. It's a different kind of covenant. It's a covenant like a will. So don't mess that up. Now, he describes this new covenant in very good terms, beginning in verse 7. Look in your Bible at verse 7 with me. Verses 7 to 12, in fact. Let's read them all. Look at it. For if that first covenant, that covenant of the law under the Levitical system had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second one or a second covenant. There would have been no need for one. Verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that Uh, when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. None of them shall teach their neighbor and none of his brother uh, or none uh, his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Well, that's a good new covenant, isn't it? Let's talk about these elements this morning. The first thing he said is this a, it's, a, it's a new covenant by need. It's almost intuitive. It's obvious. The writer had said that this first covenant of law was defective. It was deficient. It could not achieve what we need. It couldn't achieve eternal life. It couldn't achieve permanent forgiveness of sin. And so he said in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second one. There would have been no need for a new covenant. But the fact that God himself said, I'm going to send a new covenant tells us the first one couldn't do what we needed to do. Again, not because God failed, but because we fail. Because we are faultless. The law can never save anyone. The law can never keep us in line. No Old Testament offering could completely forgive sin. The law simply proves that we need a Savior. And we certainly cannot save ourselves. I knew a man one time who said, said, when I got saved, I don't sin anymore. Now, I wasn't very old when he was telling me that, but I had gotten saved. And I knew that wasn't true of me. And I, he was a grown man, and I was a teenager, and I said, well, sir, my daddy told me to say sir to everybody that was older than me, so I said, sir, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I don't think you're telling the truth. And they said, no, the Bible says when I got saved, I don't sin anymore. I knew where he lived, and I, I didn't say it to him because I didn't want to start a fight, but I thought, I'm going to go ask your wife because I know where you live. I know what house you live in. The first covenant couldn't do it. The first covenant couldn't make us perfect, and, and it is the new covenant. In fact, the second thing he says here is the new covenant's not just new, it's new in quality. When you say new, you can mean two things. <clears throat> you can mean the same thing made new or a new thing. I have this old 
cheapo watch that I wear when I'm running around working in the yard or I'm just running around. It's ugly, it's cheap, but it runs forever. I mean, it, it, that watch cost me $12 and you can't break that thing with a hammer. I mean, it just takes a lick and it keeps on ticking. And, and when, it, when it finally quits, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get a new one just like it. In fact, I was telling Sherry the other day, I was looking at that watch, and I've had that one a long time. In fact, the band usually breaks before the watch quits, and then I go get a new one because it's only $12. I just get another one. I've had like four of those watches in my life. And I said, when this, I don't have it today. I have to wear my nice watch on Sunday. But my old, I told her the other day, I said, when this watch quits, I'm going to get a new one. Now, when I say a new one, what I mean is a new one of the same thing. A new, a new watch that's the same, okay? But when the writer here says new, he uses, again, it's a word deal. When he says new here, he doesn't mean a new of the same thing. He means a new different thing. Like I'm gonna, I could say when this watch dies, I'm going to get a new watch that's different from this one and better. That's what he's saying. You could say the same thing about automobiles. If you have a particular <clears throat> brand of automobile, you drive a Chevy Silverado truck, okay? All you Ford people just have to go with the, with the scenario here, okay? Or you could drive a F-150, that's fine. And you say, I'm going to get a new truck next year. Well, what are you saying? Well, I'm, you're probably going to go buy the thing that you like. I'm going to go buy a new F-150. or I'm going to buy a new Chevy Silverado. Well, you're, you're getting a new one, but you're really getting the same thing. You could say, I'm going to get a new truck and get something different get something that isn't what you have now. That's what the writer's saying here about the covenant with Jesus Christ. He says, look, Jesus brought in a new covenant that isn't like that old one. It isn't a new version of the old one. It isn't a new makeup of the old one. It's completely new. It's completely Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 is where he says it. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, and I will make a new covenant, a brand new one, different one with the house of Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In other words, it won't be like the one that I gave them uh, from the mountain from Sinai when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It won't be like that at all. Well, I'm here to tell you a relationship with Jesus Christ is nothing like that. A relationship with Jesus Christ is nothing like the law. In fact, Jesus says, in him we're set free from the law. In him we're set free from bondage. In him we're set free from the bondage of sin. It's completely new and it's completely better. The new is not like the old at all. In fact, once you have the new covenant, you don't want the old covenant. That's what the writer is saying to these Hebrew Christians. Once you have this thing that Jesus has brought in, this gift, this freedom, this grace, you don't want to be put back under, under that law. You don't, want to, you don't want to do that. It's been replaced. It's better. And then thirdly, probably the most significant part of the new covenant is a different application. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they'll be my people. The law of the Old Testament <clears throat> demanded, demanded conformity by fear. You say, well, you know, would God do that? Well, yeah, because the law is a reflection of his holiness and his perfection. And God said, don't offend my holiness, here's my law. In um, Numbers 15, beginning verse 32, you can go home and read it. 
God had just given them the law and said, uh, on the Sabbath day, don't do anything. Don't, you know, God specifically said, don't even pick up firewood. What did they find a guy doing the next Sabbath day? He's out there picking up firewood. So they arrest him, put him in ward, the Bible says, and Moses, it's the first instance, they just got the law, it's brand new. Moses goes to God and says, Lord, what do I do with this guy? He was picking up firewood on the Sabbath day when you said don't pick up firewood on Sabbath day. God said, take him outside the camp and have everybody stone him to death. That dude, that dude got stoned to death for picking up firewood, for breaking God's law. Now listen, that hurts our sensitivities today, but I want you to understand something. God's serious. God's serious about sin. The only reason God don't do that today is grace. Okay? We deserve the same thing. It's just grace. But God said, stone that guy. Now here's what I would suspect. Nobody picked up firewood the next, uh, the next Sabbath day. <laughs> what do you think? I bet if somebody was thinking about picking up firewood on the Sabbath day, the whole stoning thing took care of that. Right? I mean, they saw it. So there's this external pressure. There's this fear. There's this thing of, man, I have to obey because if I don't obey, the consequences are severe. Well, that is one way to do it. But there's a better way. Jesus brought in a better way. You know what that is? God said, you know what? Instead of putting pressure on the outside, I'm going to bring in a new covenant and put it on the inside. I'll write it on her mind and I'll write it on her heart. And here's what happens. When we get saved, God puts his word in our mind and our heart. And we go from, from obeying because of fear and pressure from the outside to wanting to obey from the inside. And no longer is it pressure to obey. It is a delight to obey. Amen. No longer is it a try where we try to obey in the flesh and go, man, I really want to go pick up firewood, but I don't want to die, so I'm going to sit here. It goes to, man, I want to honor God with my time and with what I do. I would never want to offend him by doing something on the Sabbath day. You see the difference? One's from the outside and one's from the inside. And so what God said here is, look, in the new covenant, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to put it on the inside of them. And when you get saved, guess what God has done? God, the Holy Spirit, made you a new man or woman on the inside. You became a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit came to live inside you. And now you and I have convictions about how to walk before God that come from the inside, not on the outside. And that's why it isn't about legalism. It isn't about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about God's word in our heart and mind. Listen, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The apostle Paul said this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He said, I beseech you to do that because it's just a reasonable thing to do. But listen, and do not be conformed to this world. Don't be forced into the mold of this world. Listen, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul, Paul knew, didn't he? He said, listen, get God's word in your mind. And you know what that means? Here's a dirty word, study. Okay, got to read it. You say, Pastor, do I have to learn all them, all them Greek words? No, you don't. They just made me do that in school. You, you need to read the Bible. And that stuff needs to go in your brain. And you know what happens when it goes in your brain? Holy Spirit will move it to your heart. And so then you'll be what the new covenant says. You'll have it in your head. You'll have it in your heart. 
And you be bopping through life and things come along and, and temptation comes along and the Holy Spirit on the inside says, don't do that. And the Holy Spirit says, oh, remember what you read. Remember what the Bible says. Remember what God's Word says. And you'll have a conviction in your heart. And listen, God's new covenant, this is the key, God's new covenant is built on love. His love. Unconditional love. Which, which moves us on the inside to reciprocate. To love Him back. That's the new covenant. So, the new covenant's better than the old covenant. You get it? Okay? Has better application. Two things and we'll close very quick. You listen quick, I'll talk quick. Okay? Fourthly, it's inclusive. Look again at verse 10. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall uh, know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. That last phrase is wonderful. From the least of them to the greatest of them. Very quickly, in Jewish society, social structures were cemented in place. Okay? First of all, it started with there's Jews, Hebrews after Abraham, and there's everybody else. There's Jews who whom they in their in their in their time and in their day said, Man, we're God's people, we're in, we're in the kingdom no matter what, and the rest of y'all are just out of luck. That was the view, from the greatest to the least. And the only way a Gentile, under the old covenant, and listen, I'm a Gentile, so I'm so thankful for the new covenant. The only way under the old covenant is you had to become a Jewish proselyte. You had to go there. You had to, had to learn the things and do the sacrifices and stuff. And you could only go so far in the temple, you couldn't even go in where the Jews worship because you're a Gentile. So even if you did say, I love Jehovah God and I want to worship Him, they still may just stay out. And then in Jewish society, there was the religious elite. And then there was the people who were the common folks, the shepherds and the, and the, and the people who did stuff. The religious elite looked down on all those people and said, man, you might be and you might not be, and I'm not sure about you if you're qualified or if you're worthy. You know what God said about the new covenant? Everybody can come. Isn't that good? Everybody can come. Jews and Gentiles. Great and least and rich and poor and smart and unsmart, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Everybody can come. Why? Because the new covenant is built on the love of God and built on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not on us. And then finally, the last one is this. The forgiveness of God under the new covenant is complete. And I mean complete. Nothing else needs to be done. Listen to verses 12 and 13. We'll close. God said, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Well, that's good stuff, isn't it? Verse 13. And that, he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. God said, in this new covenant, I will forgive your sins and I'll remember them no more. Doesn't get any better than that. Doesn't get any better than that. Not only does he say, I'll forgive your sins, but I'll forgive them forever. Past, present, future. And I'll never bring them up again. I'm glad God did that. I'm glad we have a new covenant that's based on his love. A better covenant. Better than the old. You know, we can be guilty today of doing what the Jews did. We can be guilty of trying to go back to a legalistic system in our Christian faith, can't we? 
we could be guilty to going back and making rules and regulations and you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to look like this, you got to look like that. You got to dress like this, you got to dress like that, you got to talk like this, talk like that, go here, go there. We make these rules. Now nah, the new covenant's all grace and everybody can come. No matter what you look like, no matter how you dress, no matter where you came from, you can all come. You can all come. If you're here today and you've never been saved, I'm really out of ways to explain it. I don't know, I don't know how else to tell you that you ought to get saved, okay? Uh, and, and I want to give you that opportunity right now. If you don't know that you're saved, if you say, man, I'm not sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die, right now, online, wherever you are right now, stop, confess your sin to God, tell God, God, I'm a sinner and I know it. I believe what your word says. I believe I'm a sinner. God, I've sinned against you. I believe Jesus Christ died to pay for my sin. He rose again the third day, and I believe he's alive right now. And by all the faith that I have, God, I ask you to forgive my sin and save my soul. Now listen, if you're willing to do that, you say, can it really be that easy? It can't be any other way. That's exactly how it is. Would you pray and receive Christ today? Would you do it right now where you sit? Would you do it where you are online? Do it right now. Let's pray. God, thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the new covenant and our great high priest, Jesus Christ. God, I pray today that someone who hears this, Lord, would be convicted. And that, Lord, they would come right now. Lord, I pray that they would understand there's an eternity at stake. Lord, and this offer is only good until they die. And Lord, let them not waste the opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I ask you to save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing together. You come. If I can help you, if you have questions, you say, man, I want to get saved. You come on the first verse. I'll be right down front. Thank you for being here today. Again, keep an eye on the worship guide online to know what's going on. Remember, this week is the pickup for uh, the Operation Christmas Child. want to encourage you to be involved in that. And the other thing uh, we have coming up this next week, please, please, please. On Tuesday, we're going to be moving all of our life group stuff this week to Tuesday. So the ladies will meet at 2 on Tuesday. All the life groups meet Tuesday night, youth, children, all that stuff happens on all Tuesday is going to be our normal Wednesday schedule. So please keep that in mind. If you show up Wednesday, guess what? You're going to be sitting in your car listening to Christian radio for a little while. So just keep that in mind. All right, guys. Well, it's good to see you today. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer as we close this morning. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and care for us. Thank you that we could come this morning and worship you that we could lift our voices, we could give back, and we could listen to the Word. Now, God, help us to, to embrace what you're doing in each and every one of our hearts and lives. Help us to be sensitive to the Spirit of God working in us and moving us. Give us boldness that as we go out of this place, we take what we're learning from the Spirit of God and from the Word of God, and we're sharing it with people that need to know about God. 
Father, help us to lead people to God in all we say and do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you guys. Have a great week.